I really do enjoy the privilege of getting to lead the music here at GBC. Um, we, when we took two months off to be with family for a little while, and I wasn't playing and leading, uh, we were visiting a few other churches with my sister, helping her find a new church in the area. And um, one of the things that I missed so much was us, us singing together. And um, this morning I was just thinking of that as I was leading the singing and just what a joy um, hearing the kids in the back, everybody in the front, and um, just, just really uh, lifted my heart this morning. So thank you for that love that you show me uh, and the love especially while we were out um, for a little while. And, and you, you, you definitely let us know that you missed us. We're thankful for that. Um, so we're, we are in Zechariah. If you're wondering where that is, hit the middle of your Bible-ish. If you get Matthew and then go back a few pages, you're about there. Um, I think it would be fair if you asked me the question why we're in Zechariah. It's like a fair question. Uh, because um, probably not there too often. Uh, it is certainly a little difficult to understand. Um, and I think there's a couple reasons that I have for being in Zechariah. Um, first of all, I did a Sunday school for young adults on Zechariah. This is about a year, year and a half ago. Um, and basically had been wanting to study the book for a while, had been putting it off. And the Sunday school was an opportunity for me to study it um, and really uh, fell in love with the book. I, I was surprised at how much is there that relates to us. Um, I was not expecting it to be so relevant, uh, and so I hope that that comes across as we meet together tonight. Um, the reason why I think it's so relevant is because Zechariah was written to a people uh, that certainly are discouraged, uh, that at times they, they certainly felt discouraged about their situation. Um, and if you think about their own journey, the people of God at this time, there had been progress. Uh, there had been regress, there had been progress again, there had been regress. And this was probably, if you're drawing like uh, some kind of graph for the children of Israel, right? There's a spike, good stuff, bad stuff, good stuff, bad stuff. This is a really low point in that graph. In fact, maybe the lowest. Um, because you have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and you don't have a lot of resolution up till now. There's still, everything is kind of in a shambles. And so they're looking around and wondering what God is doing, wondering if things will change because it's been a long time. And for me, that was such a profound match because I think as we look around sometimes at our nation, we would say certainly uh, that... Um, God's law is not prized, God's reign is not prized, his name is not prized in our nation as we felt like it should be. Um, if we look around at American Christianity, we would say certainly there's been some bumps in the road recently, um, some very public and ugly things. Uh, we see a lot of Christians biting and devouring one another. And so we see a lot of regression around us. And then we might even look at our own life and say, you know what, I see progress, I see growth in my life, uh, but recently I see regression. I see that, you know, things are not what they were. Maybe love for God is not what it was. Uh, maybe there's a sin uh, that's a hold on your life. And so I think 
if you were to say, or if I were to say to you, hey, if you had a friend who is dealing with spiritual regression, where would you counsel them to go? Where in the Bible would you, would you tell them to turn? And I think we might say Psalm 51, right? Well, certainly David repenting against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That would be a great place to go. We could point to the thief on the cross, right? The open arms of Christ and how he is ready to receive any. But I would not have said, hey, go to Zechariah. Check Zechariah out. And I hope that after tonight, maybe we'll go there. Uh, that that would be another place that's a resource for us in God's word. I think if we think about what does it feel like to be in regression, I think we can maybe all identify with that. Uh, or, or having a period of, I was trying to think of other words because saying regression over and over in a sermon just feels, I don't know, kind of stuffy. So backwards, moving backwards, I don't know. But I'm going to stick with regression, so stick with me on that. Uh, I thought trying to understand that, we can obviously think about our own life. But I think maybe looking through the eyes of a child might be the, the best, right? So what happens when a child does something that they know they shouldn't do and are caught with it, right? There's this feeling of kind of internal, internalization. I don't, I don't want to talk about it, kind of caving in, right? And I think that a lot of times for us, it can be that where there's this feeling of being stuck, this worry about what does God think? when I have not only sinned, but when I've sinned again and again, when I really have neglected my walk with him, what is God's position to me then? And that's what Zechariah speaks to. I think we'll see from this first chapter that even when we have regressed, even when we have taken a step backwards, God moves towards his people with a jealous love. And that is something that is true um, all the time. Who feels like they can relate to visions? So you, let's see, you, you, you enjoy reading about visions. When you're at Barnes & Noble, you like pass the sci-fi section, you pass the magazines, and you go back to the vision section just to grab a book about visions. You guys, anybody do that? No? <laughs> I, I think generally visions are not a genre that we look for, right? In fact, it's not even something we really have in our culture, right? We don't typically share visions. Maybe like you'll talk about a bad dream you had last night or something really, really weird that happened uh, in your dream. But visions are not something that we typically uh, read. Uh, I th- and I think part of that um, is we, we are very literal. Like we like things very plain. In fact, who here likes modern art? Maybe there might be some among you that do, right? But maybe I would guess that that's few of us. That, that maybe most of us like a painting with a tree. We can clearly see what it is. There's a valley. There's a river flowing through it, right? We like that. That's defined. That's beautiful. But what are these colors smashed together on this canvas? And how do I interpret that? Right? I need something more specific. And when we're in our Bibles, right, we, we like Paul's direct words, right? He tells us not to steal. That's very clear. We know what that means. Uh, we know even in the narratives we're studying in Exodus, right? We can follow the story. It, it unfolds in a way that makes sense to us. But when we come to visions, what do we do with those visions? And I, I'd submit that actually, I think a lot of us, when we read visions, we're looking for details. We get, we're, we're supposed to see the big picture. We're supposed to let it impact us. But we get kind of caught up because of 
the way we're cultured. We want to find those little details. Okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? And we have to keep checking ourselves and saying, okay, I have to let this vision impact me. So I think visions, much like modern art, are designed for the emotional or deep impact they have on us. So that's what I think God made them for. And we have to reckon with the fact that they're there, that God's giving us visions to communicate something to us, and it is this genre that we need to receive from him. So let's go ahead, and if you're in Zechariah chapter 1, let's look in verse 7 together. We'll start in verse 7. This is February 15th, 519 B.C. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, he tells us, actually, uh, and I have some help from some scholars. He says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. So very, very specific date. Uh, Zechariah is receiving all of these series of visions on this date, and then he's, he's recording them and reporting them for us. So the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. So again, I want us to try, as we're reading this vision, try to paint this image in your mind, because that's the point of the vision. The point of the vision is to see the image, to receive it as something, as, as, a, as a picture painted for us. So there's a, there's a man at night, riding on a red horse. And if you're picturing like Ferrari red, maybe adjust that a little bit, okay? Horses aren't Ferrari red. Uh, maybe like, you know, a natural horse color, okay? So a red horse, he was standing among the myrtle trees, okay? So maybe similar to our crepe myrtles, kind of. Uh, standing among myrtle trees in the glen or the ravine or he's, he's in a narrow valley, all right? And behind him are these red sorrel and white horses. And sorrel, you could substitute the word chestnut, if you like that. Okay, so just, there's nothing really like that we need to dissect about the colors here. It's just painting, again, it's painting a picture. There's these horses, horses of different colors. And then I said, and what's interesting about these visions is there's this pattern. If you read Zechariah, you'll see there's a vision. Zechariah says, what's going on? What am I looking at? And then there's an angel standing by to tell him. And so that's, we have that pattern throughout Zechariah. And that's uh, the pattern here in this first vision as well. So he says, what are these, my Lord? And I kind of like that. Uh, It's helpful to us, right? Because he's basically saying, what am I looking at? What do I see? And that's the same question we have, right? There's this vision. We've been painted it in front of our eyes. What am I looking at? And then the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And so here we have what they are. Verse 10, so the man was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are horses, or these are they, talking about the horses, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Okay, so there's a little meaning there. This is something, these horses are the representative of God's Knowledge of what's going on in the world, okay? Maybe this is, again, this is not like telling us exactly how God works. Again, this is more of a picture. So we have this picture painted of God's knowledge throughout the earth. These are they, those horses, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Well, why? Why, why would God need help patrolling the earth? And they, the horses, answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, 
we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. All right. Well, that's a nice picture, right? So we have this beautiful picture of a ravine. We have these horses that report uh, the news that they've investigated. They've scouted the world, and there's peace. Okay, that's nice. But we need a little background, I think, to understand what this, how the Israelites would have received this. So the Israelites, as you remember, or may remember, they were exiled, right? They were dispersed. The temple, their center of worship, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And this was not something where they came in, the Babylonians, and destroyed things and kind of let people leave nicely. Uh, There was a lot of atrocities that happened. There was a lot of cruelty that happened by the Babylonians to the Israelites. And so that's why you have Jeremiah weeping and weeping for God's people because of the devastation. Then, as God's people are dispersed, Cyrus the Great with Persia conquers Babylon and encourages the people to rebuild their temples. Okay, so kind of good news. There's a regime change, right? It's Persia, not Babylon. We're thankful for that. The Israelites are allowed to practice their religion again. This is a good thing. And they're even invited to come back and restore the temple. That's also a good thing, right? Um, but we're not quite at that, if telling the story, we're not quite to the book of Zechariah yet. So after that, there's, things don't exactly go as planned. There's about 17 years of internal and external problems. There's disagreements. There's instability. Um, agriculture doesn't work out the way they had hoped. You can actually read in Haggai, some other time in the first part of Haggai, you can read about this. Like, things are not going well. Uh, The crops aren't working out. There's new homes that need to be built, and and that's not going well either. And then you had this complicating factor that there were some Israelites in exile who had grown comfortable. They actually didn't really want to move back. They liked their homes uh, wherever they were dispersed. They had found a new way of... Uh, economic prosperity, and so they they felt like they didn't really need to move back. And so you have the people of God, you can imagine wondering if they have enough strength, enough people, Uh, they're, they're in disarray, the communication is not good. And so here, this message of peace would have sounded true, but would have sounded hollow, right? Because there was peace, there wasn't anyone hurting them, there wasn't anyone like actively Uh, killing off Israelites or actively harming them. They were allowed to practice their religion. There was peace, but they didn't have the temple. They didn't even really have their city. They didn't even really have their nation at all. So things were still in a shambles. So peace wouldn't have really sounded that great. And I think we can feel somewhat the same, right? We, We, maybe you have something in your house Uh, that kind of has remained the way that it was, right? There's this doorknob, and you know you have to, like, twist it two times to the left and once to the right, and then it'll open, you know? Uh, I I have um, actually this today. uh, So last year, our AC unit started. There's, like, the condenser valve. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a little half-inch PVC pipe, and it comes out of the AC unit, right? And it's supposed to drain off condensation, and it was getting clogged, so last year tried to get it unclogged, took a vacuum to it, and tried to suck out the fluid and everything. Okay, what I should have done probably is clean it, take it apart, right? So you know what I did this afternoon? 
I unclogged it, right? Because I, I put that off. It was just there, and I'll get around to it. And so I think there's things in our life that we kind of grow accustomed to just dealing with. Like it's there, and it's not causing me any like huge amount of pain right now. I can just kind of deal with it. And unfortunately, that can happen to us in periods of regression, of spiritual regression, where maybe we're holding on to a sin, maybe we've moved far away from God, and we kind of treat it like that doorknob where, you know, I think I can just work my way around it, like I'm kind of okay. And here, that is the piece that uh, we're speaking of. And if you're wondering why, like, hey, uh, Pastor Rich, I think this interpretation I'm not sure if you're right about this interpretation. Are you just like reading into this? Uh, is this you know, background you read from a scholar that convinced you? Well, let's look at verse 12, because I think you'll see maybe uh, that, that, that we're right on track here. So verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, so this is the angel of the Lord's response to that vision that we just saw. Okay, what's the response of the angel of the Lord? He cries out and says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? All right, so this feeling of regress, this feeling of deserving judgment, that's how it was, right? They, they, there really was, this rest was not a true rest. It was a hollow rest. It was an empty rest. It wasn't filled with true um, God-given rest. And so, there's this inspiration, this inspirational cry that's given to the angel that says, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? How long will you hold your hand against us? You have been angry these 70 years. And the Lord, in verse 13, answers gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked to me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous. And if you're reading kind of literally, the Hebrew is, I am jealous with great jealousy. It's this piling on of words. I'm very, very jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am, same, same Hebrew expression there, I'm angry with anger. I'm angry with a great anger against the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. So I want us to pause for a second uh, while I, th- I think we're, rec- we're getting ready to receive these comforting words from God. But I think at the end there's something really curious that I think I would be wrong to pass over. Um, because you see God is saying in verse 15, I'm very, very angry with the nations. Well, why would God be very angry with the nations? Well, God had used the nations for judgment against Israel, Right? But God is saying, yes, I was angry, but a little, right? They, they were my instrument to use to punish my people. But they furthered the disaster. In other words, these nations went too far. I wanted them, I wanted to use them to judge my people, but they were cruel. They were wicked in the way that they did it. They carried it too far. And I, I, I think it's proper for us just to pause and say, I don't know how God's sovereignty works. I don't know how this all fits together. Uh, I, I have to marvel at the wonder of this because it's beyond me. But, but it, before that, uh, we have Yahweh saying, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I think we can take this for ourselves as well. So 
During times of regression, we asked at the beginning, what is God's posture towards me during times of regression? Towards his people, what is God's posture? Well, I think we see clearly here that God wants us particularly to know of his jealous love. He has jealous love for his people. Um, For me, this concept of jealousy is difficult to understand, right? God is jealous for us. Well, I, I don't often use that word in a positive way, right? We don't often use that word positively. We have a lot of instances in Scripture where it's used, even talked about as a sin, right? We have James 3.16, where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, for you are still of the flesh, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there is a jealousy, certainly, that's sinful. So what distinguishes sinful jealousy from a godly jealousy? How do we know what God is talking about here? Well, let's think of an instance that we have in Scripture that's sinful jealousy. All right, we've talked about it. We acknowledge that it's a sin. Uh, What about King Saul? So King Saul sees David, he's growing in popularity. What is King Saul losing to David? Well, he's losing his people's favor, right? So the people loved Saul, but David is coming onto the scene, and the people love David. And Saul is, is losing that and reacts selfishly in a way that tries to destroy David, right? There is this, this attempt even uh, to murder David, but a godly jealousy, we see, is actually a real thing as well. Second Corinthians 11, Paul talks about being jealous with a godly jealousy for the people he's writing to. Um, I think I was helped um, by thinking through this with Tim Keller. He says it like this, godly jealousy is more about the loss of the relationship. So it's love fighting against extinction. Sinful jealousy is love actually going extinct, right? So there's love that exists. There was a relationship, but that love is being burned out by the jealousy. It's it's being eaten up by the selfish ambition that's there. But instead, God is fighting for the exclusivity of the relationship, right? So God is not acting in jealous love against his people, but God is acting in jealous love to save the relationship despite what his people have done, right? How do we deal with our own relationships when others uh, in that relationship, becomes, it becomes difficult with us, right? So how, how do we respond when someone we're, we love, someone we care about, that relationship becomes difficult? Well, uh, any number of different responses, right? We might, we might withdraw. Um, we might get angry and respond in kind, maybe in anger. Okay, in any number of different, different ways. In fact, those relationships sometimes become so difficult to navigate that we actually have to detach from them, right? Sometimes we're not safe. Sometimes we're not, uh, we, we, we are not well, and we actually have to remove ourselves a little from that relationship. But God is not threatened by relationships. In fact, he, he's not vulnerable at all like we are. So the simple and wonderful truth is that if you're a child of God, Even if you have regressed, God is willing to fight for an exclusive relationship with you. So I want to read again, uh, or read on in verse 16, because I think here God is really uh, preaching to us what his message is. This, This really comes home here in verse 16. So therefore, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, 
I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And if, you're, uh, if you don't uh, mind writing in your Bible, you may draw connections there. I think there's nice connection points there. In verse 16, the word mercy to me connects with comfort. So God is giving us mercy and that results in comfort. Measuring line, I'll explain that in a little bit, but I think that relates to choose Jerusalem there at the end of 17. And a house, establishing a house or a place, I think relates to prosperity, that God is saying he's giving us prosperity in a house, in a place to be. So first of all, God responds to his people's regression by comforting them with his mercy. Why doesn't God just give up on his people? Well, certainly he has a covenant with them. He has a relationship with them. You may have someone close to you that's wayward, right? Maybe you've tried again and again uh, to step in and help. You spent countless hours trying to help this person. Maybe you've given money, cried, prayed. Nothing you have done seems to reach that person. And you, you feel at a certain point that you've poured out so much energy that you don't have a lot left to give. And so why does God keep pursuing his people, right? We read, this is a perfect example because this is many, many, many years of God pursuing his people and, and, and them failing again and again and again. And so I, I love, of course, the story of Hosea where you have Hosea going after unfaithful Gomer and taking her back, even paying off her debts. And I want to read Hosea 14.4 the close of that, and I think we even had a hint of this this morning from Pastor Mark's sermon from Exodus, where God says at the end, I am a God who heals, right? And I think in the end of that passage, he's not so much talking about healing the waters, but he's actually talking about healing his people. And so Hosea 14.4, this is the NIV, I will heal their waywardness. And love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And so the difference between God's love towards us and our jealous love is that we can't change someone. We can't step in no matter how hard we try and change someone. But God actively does that for his people. That he is the healer. It's not just that he helps us, but he literally intervenes in our lives to heal us, to heal our own waywardness. He says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. So this beautiful picture in Hosea is after all of this, God is saying, here's what I want to tell you, is that even though you have rejected me again and again and failed me again and again, I will intervene to change you. I'll make you like this blossoming tree with roots that go down and flourish. And so this is God's act of mercy to us, is that in Christ, giving us new life, he literally does change our hearts and gives us comfort. Not only that, but he has a plan, right? He has a plan to prosper his people. And so he says, 
that he will again establish the house. He will again establish prosperity. So for Jerusalem, this would have, would have been a huge thing for them, right? Because what are they struggling with? Well, they can hardly build houses, let alone focus on building a temple. They can hardly have enough going to draw people back to Jerusalem, right? So God is saying, yes, I have not forgotten you. I will provide for you a house. I will provide for you prosperity. And God is doing that for us as well, right? We know that God is uniting all things so that we can be established in his kingdom. And then lastly, he's reestablishing the right worship of God among his people. And so we have this line here where he says, uh, the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And he talks about choosing Jerusalem again. And I think as we look at this vision in Zechariah, Another reason why I felt like this was such an important time for us to to view this together is because we're studying Revelation together. Uh, And Revelation is visions. And if you read through Zechariah, especially after we've gone through Revelation together, you'll be like, wow, this is so much like Revelation. I'm I'm seeing so many connections, so many parallels. So Revelation 21, I'll read, uh, this is verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. I did not see it, this is verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So literally you have the same prophecy, the same words given to Zechariah in Uh, roughly 500 B.C., that are given to John in in the book of Revelation. That, yes, God is going to stretch out this measuring line over Jerusalem. He's going to establish the city again. He's going to establish the worship of God again among his people. And so this is our refrain. This is we're, We're reminded that even though we might be in a period of regression, God has not forgotten his people. God is zealously chasing them. God is making all things new. God is building a city for his people. Um, Peter Adam, who's vicar emeritus of St. Jude's Carlton in Melbourne, Australia, talks about this passage this way. He talks about uh, feeling a period in his own life where he felt frustrated, uh, a period of regression, spiritual regression, And he says, he received a book, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, it's called Operation World. Uh, You may have heard of it. So it's a book about the nations and praying for the nations, and it's filled with statistics of nations. And he said he, he received this book, and he described his experience in praying for those nations as very discouraging. He said he saw statistics of how many billions of people needed Christ, what small percentage of those people claimed the name of Christ, He wondered how many of that small percentage, uh, of that small percentage, had not been swallowed up by prosperity gospel or some other false gospel, and was simply overwhelmed by the number of nations like this and the overwhelming need. So he's he's looking at it and saying, the statistics are are crazy. You know, there's this small, like, 4% of the population that are Christian. Of that, there's probably a large number of that that are prosperity gospel or some other form of, of, of that's not the actual gospel. Uh, God, I'm, I'm seeing nation after nation like this. How can I pray for all these nations? There's just too much of a need. 
And really, he felt, he explained, he felt paralyzed by that book and really unable to pray at all for those nations. And so he was, of course, very worried about this and went to talk to a pastor friend about this. And he said his friend gave him good advice, good pastoral advice. You know, there may be secret believers there that may be unknown. Uh, God's purposes are still being achieved, even in the face of theological error. And also relationship brings responsibility, right? So pray for where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. You shouldn't take on the whole world. And that was all good advice. And he thought, okay. So he's, he's walking home from that meeting. And he realized that as he's walking home after this conversation with his friend, he realized he'd been taking on the role of Messiah. It's like, you know, I'm going to pray for the whole world, God. Like, I I will take on this thing, and I will pray for all the nations. And and, and God spoke to him and said, no, you're you're certainly not the Messiah. Like, I've elected a Messiah and uh, chosen a Messiah, and it's not you. Um, so his prayers, of course, were merely riding the coattails of the great intercessor. And so for us, I think as we look out on our nation, as we look out on Christianity in America, and we might see regression in our nation, the Christian church, and even maybe in our own lives, we must look to Christ and hear the comforting words from Zechariah that God will fight for a relationship with his people. He is jealous for his people. He is actively pursuing his people. He has plans to prosper his people, and he's reestablishing the right worship of himself among his people. I want to say one closing word to to someone who uh, maybe is here, and you're outside the faith, and you're wondering, you've been maybe exploring Christianity, uh, maybe you've, you've been in the church for a while and are just not sure, and to me, how, how attractive is it to know that there is a God who has not only purchased your entrance into his family, but once you enter that family, will not let you go, but will constantly, powerfully, jealously draw you back with his love and will not let you fall. That is a powerful promise. That is a powerful relationship. And not only that, but that will continue on until you're united with him in glory. Um, So come, come to Christ, come to him in relationship with him.